Would you stand with me and we will go immediately from the beauty and truth of that song into the beauty and truth of God's word. We're studying through as a church family the gospel of Mark and we're in Mark chapter 3. So beginning in verse 13, Jesus, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, whom he gave the name Boanerges, uh, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Let's pray together. Father, this list of names that we've read are significant. These are real human beings with eternal destinies that uh, had the great privilege of being near Jesus during his earthly ministry. Ultimately, Father, what I ask is that we be able to see Jesus on display in the midst of their lives. We can see that they're unique from each other. They have different personalities. They, they have different preferences. Uh, they have different struggles in large measure. Though like us, they're all sinful, uh, and like us, they did have something in common, and that was a great need to know Jesus. So would you use their lives to encourage us, to shape us, to correct us, to help us to mature in understanding and maturity? Thank you for our church, Lord. Thank you for so many who have devoted themselves to building up the body of Christ today. For those who prayed and, taught, uh, and, and prepared to teach Sunday school this morning, Lord, thank you for their devotion for those who uh, have led us as we've sang praises to you, Lord, thank you. For those who are sacrificing the opportunity to be in here with us because they're leading and serving and loving children at this very moment, Lord, thank you. And so we pray that we do leverage this little bit of time that we're together studying the word for good and that your spirit would be at work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, we, as we are studying through the gospel of Mark, have arrived at the spot where the apostles are named and so what we're doing over the course of these number of weeks so we're taking one apostle per Sunday and sort of examining his life and importantly most importantly from that seeing how Jesus was at work in their lives so today we're going to focus and zoom in on Philip before we get doing that I do if we've got it want to put a picture on the screen and this is a picture that uh, Pastor Blake actually took when we were in one of the cathedrals in Ghent, Belgium. And it was a beautiful place, uh, one of the most uh, beautiful places, quite frankly, I've ever been in in my life. And uh, around the perimeter of this cathedral were, were statues of the apostles. And this, and Blake, you can correct me if I got this wrong a little bit later, I believe was, was John. And uh, I'm giving this as an illustration because this is sometimes how we think about the apostles, like carved in marble, you know. But as we study their lives, what I want you to be seeing about them is that they did not walk around with halos over their heads. When they were out traveling in Galilee, they, they looked ordinary. And do you know why they looked ordinary? Because they were. I mean, as much as this is Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and James, this is Pete, and Jim, and Andy. And I don't say that disrespectfully, I say that so we'll know that these are the ordinary group of people that Jesus used to transform the world. We're, we're, we're taking these Sunday mornings to be reminded that it's Jesus who is extraordinary, 
and he used 12 rather ordinary men. Now, I know the motivation behind carving them and putting statues up, but what we want to do is sort of normalize them and see that these were men who walked around, and they had the calloused hands, they had the grumbling arguments, they smelled like fish, they were full of doubt, they were full of fear, they often got the answers wrong, they thought too highly of themselves, too little of Jesus, they argued about which of them was the greatest and which of them really should earn a statue in life, and they argued and argued, and then they ran when they should have stayed and they slept when they should have prayed, right? And yet, in contrast to them, is Jesus. Always faithful when they're faithless. Always courageous when they're cowardly. He's sinless when they're sinful. And he's loving when they're unloving. And he truly is the greatest. And so I hope throughout our study of these 12 men, it's the character and work of Jesus that is on display. Now this morning we are going to turn our attention to Philip, and you see his name right there in Mark uh, chapter 3, verse number 18, Andrew and Philip, there he is, and uh, in one measure I want us to focus, we're taking Philip today because last Sunday we looked at Andrew, and Philip pops up in many of the same scenes as Andrew, and it's actually going to be the Gospel of John that we're going to uh, use uh, for much of our study this morning. So if you're in Mark, and want to turn over here to John, and we'll begin reading in chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 43 through 46. This is the first time we meet Philip in Scripture. Philip, by the way, it's kind of interesting, is a Greek name. It's not a Jewish name. He's the only of the apostles whose name is always given in the Greek since and Philip is made up of two Greek words, philo, which means to love, and hippo, which means anybody know? Horse. That's right, horses. So Philip, his name literally means lover of horses. And from that we take, I really don't know what we take, honestly. It's just that's what his name is. Philip. So John chapter one in verse number forty-three. The next day, Jesus. All right, who's the mover, who's the shaker, who's the decider? It's Jesus. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth, Philip said to him, come and see. So this is the first scene we get of Philip. Just a few quick things, not our major points, but just to know that Philip is from the same place, the same region that uh, uh, Peter and Andrew are, and also uh, Nathaniel and uh, old uh, James and John were nearby as well. So that's six. Six of the apostles were sort of from the same region, and this region was completely unglamorous. In fact, you can, oftentimes when you're from an unglamorous place, you have to find another place to kind of pick on. And didn't we just hear that? Well, we're from Bethsaida. Well, Jesus from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But just another, another quick note. Hey, y'all, it matters who your friends are. Amen? I mean, the three or four people that you spend the most time with, are going to have a significant influence on you, your life, your character, your decisions, your actions. They either nudge you or 
push you on towards Jesus or they're holding you back from Jesus. It's a worthwhile effort on your part to choose your friends very wisely. Their preferences, hey, they're going to be your preferences, particularly, not exclusively, but particularly when you're young. You're going to dress like they dress, listen to what they listen to, their habits or your habits, their topics of conversation, your topics of conversation. So choose your friends wisely, and friendship is one of the great gifts and blessings from God. Amen? It really is. But everything God has made and blesses us with can be corrupted, hijacked by the enemy and used for not such good things. Just about every Sunday morning when I'm done with Sunday school and walk down and walk down the nursery hallway, I just kind of glance in at the children's classes and there's the little itty bitties and there's the, no, used to be itty bitties and they aren't quite bigs yet and then the fourth and the sixth grade boys and I peek in on them and look at the second and third graders and the, there's the fourth or sixth grade girls and oftentimes I find myself praying, God, would you bless them with godly friends as they grow up. We see that right here, that these guys who, who are interested in and drawn to Jesus collectively, it's out of a friendship. So let's go ahead while we're at it, get three more passages. We're just going to read them without comment uh, consecutively here in the Gospel of John, these three scenes that have Philip in it. And then once we do that, truth be told, we're going to read just about every reference of Philip in the Bible. And then from there, we're going to get some life lessons from Philip. So let's go to John chapter 6. It's one of the scenes that Philip has in common with Andrew. The feeding of the 5,000 is one of the miracles that all the gospel writers record. So it certainly made a profound influence in their lives. John chapter 6 in verse number 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test Philip. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough for bread for each of them to eat a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down now. There was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. We're just going to read these passages, then we'll come back. John chapter 12. John chapter 12 and verse number 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And now maybe flip a page or two to John chapter 14. It may not be a better paragraph in all the Bible than this, this, this one. John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus speaking on the night before his crucifixion, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also." 
and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where we are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. That is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So we'll use these verses primarily to get some life lessons from Philip. And let's start with number one. We are all works in progress. Now, I know we've said this before as we've been studying through the disciples, but let's emphasize it again. We are, how many of us? All of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, that includes you. You are a work in progress. Anybody able to say, praise the Lord, I am not who I used to be but also not yet what you are going to be. And the reason that I underline those two words in particular is I want to emphasize them that if you're a work in progress, guess, that's what, guess what that's going to take? It's going to take some work. Now, we are aiming to be Bible-believing, Jesus-exalting, not exhausted, we can't exhaust it, Jesus-exalting, missions-minded followers of Jesus. Amen. We believe we're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Amen. So we're saved by grace, but if we're not careful, we forget that pursuing Jesus and exalting him in the world is really hard work. Remember what Paul said? He said, do the work of an evangelist. Wouldn't you call a a farmer crazy if he said, man, I really want a great harvest come October, but he hasn't been working, he or she hasn't been working in April, May, June, July, or August, or September. You know why? That's a great example. That's why the scripture, if you want to harvest, there's some things you've got to do, and then there's some things that God has to do, right? You can't create the seed. God did that, but you have got to uh, sow sow the seed, weed the thing, fertilize, water, and work. So, friends, I'm saying this to you so so you won't sit there and say, man, I'm waiting for God to do something great in my life, and you've not put forth any effort. Paul says it's him who wills and works in us for his good pleasure. And it it is a collaboration, as it were. Now, God does all the hard part. Praise God Almighty. He has rescued us by his grace. But now he's given you an opportunity. When Paul talks about the Christian life, think about the metaphors he uses. It's like an athlete. Now, there are some people who are going to compete in Tokyo in 2020, a year from now, in the Summer Olympics, and you don't know their name yet, but you will know them next year because of how they swim and how they run and how they jump and so on and so forth. But they are doing the work. You might think of that as the harvest right now. They're up tomorrow morning at 4.30, and they're going at it. They're putting in the work. And then Paul says that you're like a soldier. I didn't serve, but I've got many people in my family who do. And man, when they send you to boot camp, it is not just kick back and relax. It's some serious work. So I want you to put those two things together. We are work in progress. And we are not going to make any progress unto Christ's likeness without putting in the God-given, God-ordained, by His grace, work. Does that make sense? It takes things like, it just it takes some spiritual disciplines. 
say, man, I don't know if I know the word. I don't know if I know the Lord better this time than I did a year ago. Well, have you put in the work, the good work? It's not drudgery, the good work. Knowing his word, memorizing the scripture, sharing the gospel. There's works in progress. I can't go a day now without either Amazon photos or Facebook throwing up in my face a memory from my family from five years ago or seven years ago or ten years ago or just a year ago. And there's, here comes a picture, and here's Mary Clara crawling. Here's Abel, lost his first tooth. Here's Priscilla, she's learned to ride a bike. Here's Juliana taking her first step. And, and they're, they're, I love them, but they're also kind of heartbreaking at the same time. And I said, man, look how much things have changed. Are you able to look back on life and say, man, I used to really kind of be wobbly here, but God's fortified my faith. And man, even if I do walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to fear any evil because he is with me. I've spent some time in the green pastures. I've been by the still waters, but I have been in the valley, and he has proved himself faithful to me. We tease at our house, and I probably shared this with you before. We are a little bit concerned because I'll have um, the memory from a year ago. I, I, I think I told you that last year I took Juliana to pre-K every day, and I would snap a picture of her every day so I can just thumb through it, and it pops up every day, and she hasn't changed. And I'm starting to get a little bit concerned. At what point, y'all? It has enough time gone by that she should have grown an inch or two. Now, that, not, uh, that, that will change, and I'm confident of that, I hope. But, but, uh, but man, I don't want to look back at my life spiritually. I'm talking about spiritual. And say, so here's where I was a year ago, and well, that's pretty much where I am now. Four years ago, I was really struggling with this sin, and wow, I'm still here. Isn't it interesting? Philip, John chapter 1, we have found the Messiah. The end of the Gospel of John. When are you going to show us the Father? It's like, how can those two questions come from the same person? Do you know why? Because Philip is a human being. That's why. So, man, hasn't he learned by now? He's at the feeding of the 5,000. He's at the raising of Lazarus. How the night before Jesus is crucified, can he look at Jesus and say, when are you going to show us the Father? Isn't that what Jesus said? Philip, how long have I been with you? And you're asking this, but I can resonate with that, can't you? I can resonate with Jesus saying, are we still about this? Now, I don't think Jesus is irritated, angry, frustrated, put out with Philip. But I do think he's making an appeal. Philip, Philip, you were right. You were right when you said I'm the Messiah. And you need to start taking your own advice. Come and see. Friends, anything that is alive is growing and changing. Are you alive in Christ? Now, we're all works in progress, but secondly, what Philip helps us see is that God loves us as he finds us, but loves us enough to change us. He does love us. When he showed up in Bethsaida, Jesus desired to go to Bethsaida. He found Philip. He said, Philip, you're going to be with me. He loves us as he finds us, but he does love us enough to change us. Now, I told you I've been in a little bit of, of a midlife crisis and been in a little bit of a hokey mood, so we're going to do something. It's not hokey. I think it'll be helpful. At least that's what I'm aiming. We're going to use Philip's name as an acrostic, right? That's what those little fill-in-the-blanks are, that little string of lines there. So we're going to use his name, P-H-I-L-I-P, just to give some characteristics, some descriptions of Philip, and then you can see if you're kind of like this. Because I think as we do go along, friends, you're going to find your disciple doppelganger. You know what I mean? You're going to say, man, I am just like him. You might have already found him in Andrew or Peter or a Philip, perhaps, will be yours today. Let's start with this. Here's how God finds him, and then we'll talk about how God changes him. Philip is a very pragmatic person. You know what pragmatic means, right? 
Well, I looked it up and wrote it down just so in case you don't know. I needed to be reminded. It means relating to a practical point of view or very practical considerations. How many of you are pragmatic? Here's practical. Here's how you know if you're a pragmatic. After the grocery store, do you look at the receipt? That's, that's number one, right? How much did this cost? And we're going to do the calculations. When Jesus says we need to provide food for this large crowd, what does pragmatic Philip say? Even if we had, and he kind of does some of the math, even if we had to carry the one, 200 denarii, we would not be able to feed this number of people. Now here is the truth about Philip. What he said was, it was true. Even if they did have 200 denarii. But what I love here, that's back in John 6, you can see it there. What I love about this scene is Philip the pragmatist is there with Andrew the optimist, right? We talked about this last week with Andrew. It's Andrew who says, well, there is a boy, and he's got five loaves and two fish. And I think I told you last week that uh, in my little imagination, Andrew's looking around, and he says, well, there is a boy with five loaves and two fish. And then he sees the disciples' face, and I want to say specifically probably Philip's face, and then immediately says, well, what are they for so many? A pragmatist and an optimist are friends. That happens a lot, by the way. Do you know what really happens a lot? A pragmatist and an optimist get married. Now that's really fun. Coming from opposite directions. We're often attracted to our opposites, aren't we? So the pragmatist is drawn to the spontaneity of the optimistic dreamer. And the optimistic dreamer is drawn to the stability and got their feet on the ground realist. And it's fun at first. And then a little bit of time goes by and the dreamer will say something like, wouldn't it be fun if we, and you fill in the blank and the pragmatist says, well, what's that going to cost? And now the optimist who thought the pragmatist was so stable now begins to think he's so boring. And the pragmatist who thought the dreamer was so spontaneous begins to think you've lost your mind. Now the marriage needs what this group of apostles needs and what our church needs because we got some pragmatists here and we got some dreamers here, right? We got some optimists and some realists. And what, what we need is Jesus to bring the right direction to their differences. Amen? Now, what does our church need? Does our church need realism or optimism? Our church cannot be pragmatic only. The pragmatist always looks at the budget, and the refrain is, let's do what we've always done, because that's pragmatic, and it's real. If we've done it before, we know we can do it again. But then the optimist says, well, maybe it's time to try something different. But we don't want to try something different just for the sake of doing something different. That's why we need Jesus who steps in and says, here's what the real needs are. And by the way, I don't care how optimistic you are, you're not going to be able to do this apart from me. And Jesus is testing Philip's pragmatism right here. That's what he says. It says, he said this 
to test him. I tell you, friends, when Jesus tests me, I don't want to be found overly pragmatic. Because if we just go by pragmatism, the crowd doesn't get fed. And in John 12, the Greeks don't get introduced to Jesus. And the whole purpose of who he is is lost. As a matter of fact, that's what this whole chapter, John 6, is about. Jesus reveals his nature. Jesus reveals his character. And you think the Chick-fil-A drive through is efficient. We're feeding 5,000 men. This is important. That Greek word men is able-bodied men, as in if we're going to hold a military draft, we got 5,000 men, because that's the tone of this chapter, by the way. Look at, look what happens after he feeds them. John chapter 6, verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Why is Jesus withdrawing? Isn't he the king? They're here to make him king. Yeah, he's the king, but he's not that kind of king. Because what they've just decided is that they've picked up on it. Moses promised someone's greater is coming. And now Jesus has put that old uh, manna from heaven thing, and he's amped it up. I've just fed you out of my own hands. Two tons of fish, by the way, if you want to do the math. That's my character. That's my nature. But here's here's the rub. They don't understand his purpose. And Philip kind of stands in for the whole thing. He's the Messiah. Yeah, but what does that mean? It reminds me when, um, I've probably shared this story too before, when uh, Abel was just a little guy, he loved to come with me to church on Sunday night. He still does, by the way, not just when he was little. And one Sunday night, I was getting things set up, and we're about to start service, and I had left my Bible in my office, and so Abel was in here, and man, he has always been fast, and I just figured he can go there and bring the Bible back before I can get to the door. So I said, Abel, will you go get my Bible and put it on the pulpit? And he said, yes, sir, sure will. And he was, doom, gone. Well, I kind of lost track of him. Did I just say that out loud? Yeah, I just lost track of my own son while we were at the church. And the service has started, and we're kind of doing the greet. And I look up here at the pulpit, and there is no Bible. So I just said, well, okay, well, Abel forgot. He just ran off, and he ran into one of his buddies and so on and so forth. So we got after the service. I said, well, Abel, I remember I asked you to put my Bible on the pulpit. He said, well, I did. I said, it's not there. He said, yes, it is. I said, well, Abel, where did you put my Bible? We were standing right there, and he pointed up to the baptistry. And I said, well, Abel, why did you put my Bible in the baptistry? He said, that's the pulpit. I said, well, no, sir. No, no, son, this is the pulpit. I said, why did you think that was the pulpit? He said, well, you put water in it like a pool, and you have to walk down in it like a pit. That's the pulpit. And I have to be honest, I said, well, that, that, that actually makes a whole lot of sense. And, and then I walked up the baptistry stairs and looked in, and right in the center of the baptistry, was my Bible sitting right there. And I, and I thought to myself, that's one trusting fella because it makes no sense. Well, he, he doesn't ask, Dad, why do you want to put your Bible there? It's just, I, that's what Dad asked. That's what I did, and it's there. Now, Philip said, we found the Messiah. He's there. No, no, no. He, the, the, it's a concept that they really believed very strongly that the Messiah was a military, political, economic hero who was going to step in and they were going to wipe the Romans out of Jerusalem and they were going to reestablish an earthly temporary political kingdom when are you going to show us the father you read Acts 1 it's even after the resurrection Jesus is about to ascend and I think it's Peter steps up is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel 
because it was way down deep in their souls. And by the way, friends, it still resides deeply in us that we prefer a temporary political kingdom. And he's just demonstrated that he can solve the biggest problem of raising a standing army like that. You know what it was? How are we going to feed everybody? Even if you've got enough people, how in the world are we going to sustain an army and we've got to feed them? Well, Jesus just demonstrated, guess what? Guess what the supply officer needs to provide for us? A few loaves, two fish, we're good to go. Then they tried to make him king. What kind of king? Man, let's go take Pilate out. Let's go take the Romans out. We 12 apostles, that's what they're arguing about when they say which of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom who gets to sit on a throne in Jerusalem, right? Who gets to have the power? And over and over and over again, Jesus is telling them things like, it's not how it works in my kingdom. Whoever is the greatest in my kingdom is the least of all. In my kingdom, I, I don't lord it over you as the Gentiles do. Whoever's going to be great here is the one who's going to serve all. Philip was too pragmatic for his own good. Have you stopped believing that God can do something big and glorious? Because there's a, there's a thin line between pragmatic and cynical. And we live in a cynical generation. Where we just stop believing things. There is a deep relationship, by the way, between believing God for big and glorious things and the prayerfulness of a church. That's why, again, we'll say again and again, the most important thing we do as a church is when we gather to pray together. Pragmatic people don't pray because they've just decided, here's what it is, here's what we can do, and, friends, what I want to say, and I think what we see explode off the pages of Scripture is that Jesus is up to more than we think he is, and we have a greater Savior than we ever dared hope. Not only is he pragmatic, we'll do the others fairly quickly, is he's hesitant he's hesitant the Greeks came to him I don't want to read too much into this but he is the one with the Greek name right he says we want Philip from Bethsaida so he's not Greek but it might be that his family at least had a heart for the Greeks and so the Greeks approach him but he hesitates instead of Philip taking the Greeks to Jesus in John chapter 12 he goes and talks to Andrew and what do we learn about Andrew Andrew will take anybody to Jesus and here, aren't gospel friendships the best? Friends, you don't need a friend who's just like you. You need a friend who's not like you at all so that he or she can help you become more like Jesus. Where in your own witness as a follower of Jesus are you hesitant where you should be bold? He's pragmatic. He's hesitant. The I will let stand for indecisive. He's indecisive. He's not quite sure what we should do. He, he tends to say, well, we can't get this done. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough this. We're going to let the L and the I go together. He's lacking in initiative. Philip strikes me as someone who's just up for the status quo. Again, friends, if we keep the status quo, the large crowd doesn't get fed. The Greeks don't meet Jesus. So our responsibility as a church family is not to maintain the status quo. It's to pursue God for things that we've never seen before. That Jesus, his mission is nothing less than the full salvation 
of their souls. Well, we'll do one more. That's the P. And that is, Philip is pessimistic. He's pessimistic. We can't feed them. I'm not sure we can take them to Jesus. Philip, and some of us are wired this way, Philip had a natural tendency to see and think about what could not be done. The old stereotypical glasses half empty kind of guy, right? And this, this, again, can be very limiting in the life of a church family. We'll just say, well, no, nah, I don't think we can do that. Here's, here's the mission the church has, take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's a mission, quite frankly. If you're pragmatic, hesitant, indecisive, lacking initiative, and pessimistic, it won't ever get done. And maybe that's a word for us because it hadn't gotten done yet. But Philip was this way, and Jesus went to Bethsaida and said, I'll take him. He's on my team. He's going to come with me. So a couple other really helpful lessons from Philip's life is number three. We deepen in our love and understanding of Jesus as time goes on. This really is a rewording of the first point that we're all works in progress, but this is getting a little more specific, that we are deepening, we ought to be deepening in our love and understanding of Jesus as time goes on. Friends, I want to say with, to you with clarity, you cannot spend time with Jesus and not love him more deeply as time goes on. The only reason, the only reason that you're not deeper follower and more devoted follower of Jesus now than you were a year ago is you've not been abiding in Christ. Jesus is unlike anything else. He gets better as time goes on. Isn't everything else in the world the opposite of this way? Everything else just kind of plays itself out as time goes on. Remember that song you used to love? You're like, man, if I hear that song one more time, I will lose my mind. At one time, it seemed so new. Remember that thing you were so excited about? But just as time goes on, it just wears out. And that's, that's what Blake was saying about the song. We go to fountains, and they can't hold any water. And you keep getting that cistern. We've, we've hewn out cisterns for ourselves. They can't hold any water. And you are so thirsty. And you go to that thing, and you say, man, it's going to satisfy, and there's not a drop left. And that's what Jesus is displaying in John 6. Hey, we got 12 basketfuls left over. You don't ever come to the end of Jesus. He satisfies you, and there's always more. He's like unlike anything else on earth and that brings us to number four the remedy for all that ails us is being with Jesus the remedy for all that ails us is being with Jesus see the feeding of the 5,000 was pointing ahead to the cross the interesting thing is that what they really wanted was a messiah who would ride into Jerusalem and just lay waste clean house right but Jesus he goes into Jerusalem not on a uh, not on a, a white stallion he goes on a little donkey right so what, what is he doing and and then he's before Pilate the very representative of the Roman government that they wanted to wipe out and he doesn't wipe him out in fact it's Pilate who sentences Jesus to death and, and then they go out and there's the Roman soldiers, the very kind of people that, that in John 6, I'll just read it to you. You know what the culmination of the feeding for 5,000 is? John 6, 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
And there Jesus is hanging on a cross. And here's the question. Is this the ultimate defeat or is this the ultimate victory? Because we always want a temporary earthly appetite satisfied right now. You want to see the Father, Philip? Just keep watching. God demonstrates his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, when we are overly and unrighteously pragmatic, when we are spiritually hesitant, when we are lacking initiative, when we're ignorant, we don't get the answer right, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And again, even the most optimistic dreamer could have never hoped for what God has actually done for us in Jesus. Let's stand together as a church family, and we're going to pray together. And I'm going to invite you to set your attention and affection on Jesus, who he really is. Would you bow your heads with me? Do you see how, uh, how Philip was wired and, and how Jesus... How Jesus so deeply loved him. The Bible says Jesus said this to test him. Jesus was going to do something that Philip in his pragmatic mind couldn't have dreamed would happen. And with your attention on Jesus and specifically his crucifixion for your sins on the cross... I want you to see that God has done something for you that is more loving, more righteous, more holy, more compassionate, more forgiving than you could have ever imagined if you have the grace to see it. So there are some things that Philip did that we'd say, man, well, I don't be like that. But here's one thing he did say that I would encourage you, come and see. We have found the Messiah. Moses talked about him, and he's here. Come and see. Father, I pray for a refreshing move of your Holy Spirit among us, the most cynical among us, the most hard-hearted among us. By your grace, would you be at work in such a way that we really would, as a church family, long to see your glory displayed in ways that our budget cannot allow that our pragmatism cannot leverage, but that your goodness can bring to bear in this city and unto the nations. Would you use this invitation time to, well, if I can say it in a holy way, unsettle us a little bit, that we would not be content with our lack of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. For, so for every unsatisfied soul that's present today, would you satisfy them with the goodness of Jesus? In whose name we pray, amen.